Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. Delighted to be joined today by Steve Collins. Hi, Steve. Hi, Simon. Morning. Good. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Are you well? Yeah, very well. Yeah, very good. So Steve is the Managing Director at Insight Retail Group and also produces Insight DIY. Steve, my background's DIY, your background's DIY. So today we're going to talk about what DIY tailors, retailers would do if we gave them six months notice of the ne- next pandemic. So we're going to title it, Are You Going to Sit and Wait for Normal to Return? I think it's going to be a really, really interesting debate based on both our, our bits of knowledge in terms of how DIY works and potentially could work in the future. Before we jump into the detail, it'd be good for everybody to understand uh, a bit more about you. So short career history, how you've got to where you are today. Thanks, Simon. I think we both go back a long way, don't we? I mean, I think I'm something like 30, 32 years in the industry now. I can't believe I'm saying that really. But um, yeah, 20 of those working for suppliers and manufacturers, both in the UK and, and overseas. Um, my last proper job, as I described it, before I set my business up in Retail Group in 2010, was sales marketing director for the Dulux business based out in South Africa. I had 13 years with Dulux, Axanabel ICI Paints in the UK. Um, and yeah, set up the business in 2010 to really deliver high quality market intelligence news to a target audience of suppliers and retailers within the home improvement, trade merchant and garden industry. And that's done through Insight DIY. And we do a lot of consultancy and work with retailers and suppliers and uh, and also a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, which is, has been you know, quite significant for us over the last couple of years in terms of building our, our brand and uh, and our profile, really. Yeah, it's worth a mention. It's worth following or connecting with Steve on LinkedIn because some of the articles and insight that you publish are, are really, um, really important for people who work and consult with those types of businesses so i i follow and, and read that stuff so some great stuff you put out there steve and um, well done i know it's not not easy keep finding regular current uh, information to put out there yeah the best thing is just take lots of photos and <laughs> lots of photos in store and that's always gives you fresh content to post but uh yeah it, it's been of course a, a fascinating time the impact on this industry has been significant over the last three months so yeah lots to talk about basically I know you've been doing some research on previous pandemics, which might be some good context before we get into our thoughts on what people may do differently. Yeah, I, I was fascinated, as I think we all have been really, in terms of you know what, what's been happening to really not, not, not just of course the UK, but globally over over the last what is five, five, six months now. And I do a lot of reading and research anyway. Uh, and I was intrigued because this, this word unprecedented was being used consistently in the media by the government uh, and by everybody that, uh, that you spoke to really. And yet this pandemic of uh, 2020 is by no means um, unprecedented at all. There have been, this is what my research discovered. I think we've all heard of Spanish flu going back to 1918, 1920, but there was also two other pandemics in the 20th century, one that ran between about 1957 and 1958, and another that ran between 1968 and 1970. And these were fascinating, particularly the 1968-1971, because this, first of all, was called Hong Kong flu. 
Um, so it originated in the Far East. And some of the elements of this were just so comparable with where we are today. I think around 30,000 people in the UK died. They discovered a vaccine within about four months of it originally starting, which happened around about June, July of 1968. And this was all good so far because I'm thinking, great, you know, we've, we've clearly been able to discover vaccines before. And the very fact that I hadn't heard of or couldn't remember Hong Kong flu and certainly the, the um, pandemic of 57, 58 made me think, well, that's great news because the, if, the, if they are forgotten, then reality clearly does return fairly quickly. When I started digging further into 1968, 97, that's when I got concerned because despite the fact they'd found the vaccine and despite the fact that miraculously, about three to four months after the start, so September, October of that year, um, the virus just vanished. The deaths slowed down and stopped. The rate of transmission amongst the population um, stopped and they thought it was gone. And this is a very similar picture if you look at 57, 58, and then go back to 1918, 1919, and 1920. Each of those three pandemics then had a second wave that occurred in the winter following the first outbreak. And in each of those um, recurrence of the pandemic, up to four or five times more people died in the winter following the original outbreak earlier in the year. Now, when I got to that point, I was obviously extremely concerned because I know we are all talking about the second wave at the moment and we're watching very closely what's happening in China and other places. And I was thinking, well, if it's not unprecedented this year in terms of what's happened, are we likely to face a further wave of the pandemic, probably this winter? Um, and if it's happened three times before, why wouldn't it happen this year as well? Or certainly as we get into 2021. And my view is that it will happen. And what does that mean? Well, the one thing that has been unprecedented this year is the lockdown, because that never happened before. Despite the fact in 1968, you'll see pictures of people working in offices in London wearing face masks, interestingly enough. There wasn't the lockdown. So that is unprecedented. And will we lock down again? is the key question. And if we do, clearly the impact on the economy, on our industry and everywhere will will be dramatic because we, you know, we are going to be taking many, many years to recover from this first lockdown period. So that was the background and that is spinning around my head all the time at the moment when I'm thinking and watching what's happening in the industry. Yeah, it's really interesting because I wasn't aware of or conscious of the one in the, the kind of 60s, early 70s at all. And it it seems to get very little reference in any of the the media. It's almost like you say, this is a whole new thing. There's been small references to Spanish flu, but almost just a fleeting photograph. So it's interesting that there's clearly a history and a seeming cycle of, of how this stuff works that potentially, hopefully not, but potentially mm. we, we could be kind of halfway through. We could be. And, and if you start to look at the... Um historical documents in even more detail, 1918, 1919, which is fascinating because our prime minister at the time caught Spanish flu, had to be there to build a hospital ward for him because he was traveling up north. Some of the similarities are just peculiar. And yet, as you say, there's no real awareness of this at all. And 
Yeah, we're, we're facing challenging times, no doubt. And I think that goes very back back to the heart of what we're discussing today. And that is quite simply, how do we then prepare as an industry if you know if another lockdown is is six months away i guess so if i'm a diy retailer then and i've let's say today been given a a notice to get prepared in six months time we're going to go through through this all again um be a bit different because the weather's different and you know queuing outside a store or not being able to open your store are going to be massively affected by those things knowing what we know now how do you think they'd start to prepare for that? I think the first key point is that this understanding of essential versus non-essential retailers. And if we go back to what happened towards the end of March, home improvement stores weren't asked to close at that stage. They were classed as essential goods predominantly because of the supply of emergency products for the likes of tradesmen, plumbers, electricians, uh, and those type of people. So they weren't asked to close. They closed purely because, first of all, they had to get their head around what the impact on stores was of social distancing. And they took a lot of learnings from what had been done effectively in Tesco, Asda, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on that side, there would be no change. If there was another lockdown, without doubt, home improvement stores would be classed as essential retailers once again. And of course, they've done the operational work, they've incurred the cost of managing the social distancing measures effectively. So I think they would, first of all, be thinking, right, okay, we don't need to close stores. We can now enter this phase confidently with the measures that we've taken. But of course, that's assuming people would be allowed to go out to stores. And if we go into lockdown again, it will be, I'm sorry, but you have to stay at home for a certain period. So that is where these companies really have to carefully think through how they are now going to effectively get their products out to consumers who once again will be faced with staring at the walls of their home thinking, you know what, it really does need a coat of paint or I really do need to replace this floor. And you won't have the benefit then of being able to go outside necessarily if the weather may not be so good at that point. So this whole focus once again on home improvement, it's, it's, it's totally ironic for the industry that a point when everybody had money to spend and time to spare on improving their homes and gardens, the home improvement stores were closed. I think the other irony was we had a blister in Easter as well. <laughs> we <did>. um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was Easter to dream of, wasn't it, for, uh, for retailers? Yeah. Um, yeah, especially, but, especially in that field, yes. gardening, plants. It, um, yeah, if you'd have wanted the weather, that would be the weather you bought in DIY. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but what happened, of course, was they were all struggling online to be able to cope with the demand that suddenly hit them. So I think the majority of retailers struggled. I mean, you'll remember mm-hmm. perhaps over Easter weekend, Easter Sunday, I tried to get on DIY.com and was told that there was an hour wait just to access the website. And at that point, there were 230,000 people ahead of me in the queue. Now, these are the kind of roadblocks that have to be dealt with. Retailer by retailer, they struggled with this. Home base could not cope with the volume of online orders that were hitting their business. Them, like many others, have been torn apart on social media. The damage to their reputation during that period has been quite significant. I think that they're doing a lot to recover from that now. But they weren't they were not geared up to cope with the volume that hit them. Now, why weren't they? You know, we've we've had the internet for over 20 years. 
we have um, significant growth in online retailing year after year after year. Just before Christmas, we hit for the first time 20% of total online total retail sales were being made online. That's across all categories. And yet home improvement has still been dragging sadly behind that. And it's probably in the UK something prior to COVID, something in the region about eight or nine percent penetration. Categories like paint below two percent. How can you have paint online, which is a bulky product to have to drive to a store and pick up? How can it be below 2% in terms of penetration when you have books and other products up at 80 90%? And actually, a lot of other home improvement products, whether it's flooring or wallpaper, at higher penetration than that. So the retailers weren't geared up. And to answer your question, maybe they now have four or five months to sort themselves out in terms of the user experience, in terms of availability, of the products online in terms of just ensuring that the flow of product from the retailer to the consumer's home is simple and as easy and as quick as possible and not make it difficult, which is what they have been doing over the last, uh, really, 10 years. My view is, Simon, their their foot has been on the brake when it's come to online because they have so many stores full of so much staff, so many stock, they have to um, they have to keep that sustained. Uh, Steve, I, I totally agree. I think there's been a big focus on on product and, and range, um, maybe not online, certainly no investment in kind of store portfolios. For me, there's there's a couple of challenges they've got to quickly overcome and I completely get where you were coming from with your experience online in that Easter weekend because I had one with a, a different uh, home improvements retailer, waited for an hour or did some stuff as a little man, slowly walked across the screen and then found all the stuff I wanted, put it in my basket, and none of it was available for collection, which was a bit frustrating. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's experienced that. But for, for me, there's a couple of challenges within that, that this industry is unique. One, the range of products. Uh, I think that there's a challenge in there from uh, flat back kitchens through to screws and nails, and then the the broadness of the range. I think that that's a challenge to decide what's suitable or not. Two. I think there's a piece around the delivery network. So if you think of supermarkets, they've got a really good home delivery offer. It's well regimented. Everybody knows they can drive through now or they'll deliver. That kind of doesn't seem to have been a consideration. It's all collect, if you like, or as as ever, they'll deliver a big shed from the manufacturer or a bulk delivery, but not particularly a, you know, a couple of tins of paint or alike. And three... I think there's a real, for me, gap in the use of things like virtual reality, augmented reality, when it comes to that that paint point, because I think Dulux have got an app now where you can hold it against a wall and it kind of matches the shade. Mm-hmm. So the the manufacturers are kind of doing it, not necessarily the the home improvement retailers jumping on it. And I think we're in a world now where I would want to walk around my kitchen let's say with with an app be able to drop in the units change the shape of the doors change the color of the jaws change the handles change the paint change the flooring back to a big project and then it almost draws me up a list of based on the sizes this is the flooring you need this is the paint you need there's your basket that's the cost when do you want it um because yeah. you can do it with 
clothing with the virtual wardrobe you can do it with all sorts of other types of industries outside of that so I'm, i may be doing a, a bit of a discredit but i think there is a lag i totally agree um i think it's more than a lag i think it's a lack of ambition i think it's a lack of investment i think it's a i think it's a reaction to a lack of competition really in the space um there's a lack of market information so if the market information effectively said that you know what amazon now has a 15 percent share of the uk home improvement market and it's growing by one percent every year i think you'd find the retailers reacting to that with moves into exactly the areas that you've spoken about but the lack of information leads to just no movement in that space so when i talk about as you probably know, I kind of I speak regularly and I speak to retailers and I speak to suppliers and manufacturers. The technology exists in so many different areas at the moment, whether it is to have a online design appointment or using augmented reality. It is already there. It is effective. It's not always brilliant, but it's pretty good. But it's just not being utilized effectively. So I think that lack of ambition, perhaps with some arrogance means that that's why they were caught short as soon as things change now home depot is the largest and most successful home improvement retailer on earth and about two three years ago their strategy changed and they made a conscious decision of focusing on what if we'd never needed stores in the future what would we do to be able to meet consumers' requirements in terms of home improvement? And that led to a lot of different developments, whether it was expanding their click and collect service. And on that particular point, the research they did that realized that um, obviously delivery to somebody's home is relatively expensive. You get the you know, issues in terms of somebody not being in and those kind of problems. So delivery to store for a consumer to click and collect is far more profitable, it's simpler, the product is often there. And what they found was that 70% of consumers who went in store to collect an order went on to buy something else while they're in store as well. So why are we hearing this from the States? Why are we why are we not taking all the learnings from the home improvement market and online purchasing over the last decade and applying that? Why were we not already reaching out to consumers and having design appointments online. Why do we not already have 360-degree tours of our kitchen and bathroom showrooms that people can then see online, realize how fantastic those showrooms are, which then leads them driving to the store to have a look at this. It is all there. And even now, although you're seeing some retailers, because quite frankly, they have to move away from face-to-face appointments to an online design appointment via Zoom, they're now doing that. But am I seeing any other really interesting innovation in home improvement? No, I'm not. I'm seeing Aldi partnering with Deliveroo. I'm seeing Majestic Wine partnering with Deliveroo. If you wanted a couple of tins of paint, why wouldn't you partner with Deliveroo and get those products delivered to you within an hour. If you live within five miles of a B&Q store and you're ordering stock online, why am I waiting five days for something to be delivered via the central warehouse when the chances are that product is sitting 10 minutes away from me in a B&Q store that all it requires is a delivery network to be put in place to take the product from the store to the customer's home? 
we have to take away these barriers and these roadblocks that make the flow of product from the retailer to the consumer seamless, whether it's the ordering process and the experience online, whether it's the options, do you want to collect it? Do you want it delivered? Do you want to drive to your store and have the product put in your boot? You can then drive. Now, that was picked up. And one of the retailers did that for a period during the, the, the real COVID peak, but that's now stopped. That's gone. And yet, that's a, you know, there's still a third of people who don't want to go out to a DIY store at the moment. But those people may choose to drive to a store and have the product put in their boots. So there are probably around seven, eight initiatives, many of them around delivery, that are sitting there at the moment. And I'm not seeing any movement from any of the home improvement retailers to engage with those initiatives, which I think would, would change the game, particularly if we're heading towards another lockdown. These have to be in place and have to be trialed and have to be working. The Home Depot thing is quite interesting, isn't it? Because there's the the bits around in the media of, you know, the biggest hotel company owns no hotels, Airbnb, the biggest tra- taxi company, Uber owns no taxis. So mm. you do get back to the Amazon model of, well, they don't own any shops, but yesterday I needed a new spade and guess what? It was easier to get it on Amazon. It was cheaper to get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It was... Um, quicker to get it on amazon so i bought a spear and jackson spade set from amazon yeah um it it was just easier and you can see that whole transition across there because it's it's the model that works and we know and trust and they deliver and if there's any problems they don't quibble they just sort it out so with with all that in my mind there's a lot of potential work to do in a short space of time but one thing the pandemic has shown us is that certainly within retail when the pressure's on, people can get things done very quickly that's typically taking them a long time. Mm. Do you think there's an almost an opportunity for better partnerships? So a DIY company partnering with a supermarket, so they leverage their delivery network, for example. I know we've had home-based Sainsbury's in the past, but that was almost pre-home delivery. Absolutely. And you are already seeing that. I mean, the best example I can think of actually is the tool station partnership with eBay. Mm -hmm. So that started last October. So think of um, Amazon, sorry, not Amazon, Argos has been partnering with eBay now for some years. So every product that you see in the Argos catalog and argos.co.uk is also available on eBay. There's range and, and price parity with that. And that's exactly what Toolstation have done. So last October, everything that was happening um, through Toolstation website and online was also the entire range at the same prices were available through eBay. Now that has unlocked a significant amount of incremental volume for the likes of Toolstation. Up to 80% of their business generated through eBay are with completely new customers they had never touched before. So the opportunity to partner either with a retailer like eBay or with a business that gives you reach out to stores through delivery networks or partnering with some of the tech businesses that exist at the moment. So you may be aware of the um, the delivery trial that's going on in Milton Keynes with a company called Starship. So they have these little motorized robots And basically, you order what you want from, I think, Tesco and also co-op are partnering with them. And this little robot will drive 
to your home and you have a code to open up the back and you can take out the two coffees you've ordered or sandwiches or whatever you want from that. It's a perfect size for a couple of tins of paint, a roller set and a few other things like that. So those partnerships are now absolutely critical. People have to think outside the box. They have to look at what's happening overall in terms of retail. Realize, going back to your example, consumers do not need a store to buy the majority of home improvement products that are out there. They may need a store if they're going to buy a kitchen. They may need a store if they're going to buy paint because they want to see the colors or speak to somebody, get some help. But probably 60% of the product category is functional. There is no requirement for any kind of inspiration. You just want to find the best product and you want it delivered to you in the shortest possible time. Now, in the race to deliver that, if the established home improvement retailers are not even in the game, then they'll be completely left behind. It's the reason why 240 big box home improvement stores have closed for good in the UK over the last eight years, which is a combination of about 60 odd B&Qs and almost 170, 180 home-based stores have all been because they are not in the race with those businesses. And we haven't even started talking about Instagram and House and Pinterest yet, how they are evolving their business models to become retailers. As soon as you've seen those fantastic room sets on Instagram and you decide that's how you want your lounge to look and Instagram then facilitates the delivery of first of all maybe paint and fabric and wallpaper samples to your home followed by the actual delivery of the product followed by if you want it then a tradesperson which is part of a a strategic alignment they may do with check a trade or an organization like that, then there is no role whatsoever for a big box home improvement store because all of the needs are met elsewhere. So this is not just about COVID. This is not just about coping with what may be a second peak. This is about the future survival of retail stores within home improvement if these businesses do not take the steps that we've uh, we've been talking through today. Really interesting. And and again, the things like showroom only stores, I think Wix tried that a couple of years ago and pulled back from it. Um, I think Homebase have just opened their first, is it Decorator Centre or or Decorative Only um, trial a couple of weeks ago? I was there yesterday in Cheadle. Yeah, taking a look at it. It's very interesting. So they've been there and they've, they've been tried. For whatever reason, they don't seem to stick or the cost model doesn't necessarily add up. The other thing that crossed my mind is about space. So clearly lots of the, the DIY home improvements are, are big sheds, some of them dramatically overspaced, I suspect now, which causes uh, different problems in terms of keeping them looking full or multiple facings and stock depths of the same thing. Maybe there's also an opportunity in there for more strategic alliances outside of delivery with a more concession style approach so you see it with car manufacturers now being really smart and putting showrooms in big shopping centers so stratford westfield for example because that's where people are so why couldn't i have a kitchen showroom a decorator's center in a stratford westfield Hmm. you absolutely could and um just to touch on the point you made before the the big box warehouse stores they have significant problem because they are hemorrhaging market share in some categories. Their businesses are flat. They're not actually growing. 
And as a result, you've got huge swathes of those stores that are no longer profitable. So the concession model is exactly what Homebase have been following up. So their acquisition of Bath Store and bringing in that yep. Bath Store, it's owned by them, of course, but a Bath Store concession, and along with Pond and Homes and Silent Night and other brands like that, it's absolutely what, what you should be doing. And taking, going back to the, the Cheadle example and, and Decorate by Homebase, that is a paint and decorative specialist on the high street in an area of some wealth. You know, people have fairly high disposable incomes, big properties, and it's yeah. perfect. You know, to speak to the store manager yesterday, they had a customer who came in and bought 70 tins of Coupenol Garden Shades, an order worth £700. That's <laughs> just a, a single purchase. These The customers will go where the products are available and where they get good service and in decorative and paint, you need some help with there. So it's, a, it's actually a really, really good and interesting model that they should follow. The other thing I've been thinking about, when I was looking about eight weeks ago and the DIY stores were just starting to reopen and I'd seen that Screwfix had remained open during the whole time. And I'm looking at that Screwfix model, which has been bulletproof. It really has. You know, the, the growth it has delivered and the success that business has had consistently, even through COVID, proves to me, and it's not about home improvement, it's not about specifically the way that they've done it, but you've got low-cost outlets on um, industrial estates. Why wouldn't B&Q now take 50, maybe 80 of the poorest performing Screwfix branches and turn them into B&Q. Small, tiny box stores, click and collect, the full B&Q range available to click, click and collect from a store like that, but probably 10,000 to 12,000 SKUs available there and then. So if, for example, you had the choice of buying from Amazon and getting your Spear and Jackson spade delivered tomorrow, or driving probably, and I'm guessing, um, five minutes to the local screw fix, click and collecting within an hour and getting it, then maybe that business would have won the order over Amazon. So that's what I'm thinking. And why wouldn't you, why wouldn't somebody like Marks and Spencers for their clothing or Next have a similar box like screw fix where you've got 10 to 12,000 SKUs, click and collect within an hour or even quicker and because you don't need that store experience anymore and the profitability of those units and they turn them around from you know the initial setup cost the, the, these units are making a profit within six nine months of opening i just think that is something which is really really interesting and should be explored by them at the same time uh, that's a good idea i think we're we're giving away too many secrets here steve we should be um <laughs> speaking directly to them so i i think we could carry on with this conversation for a long long time because we, we, we both quite passionate about the the home improvements industry and and i think we've both got some good thoughts but let's pause it there if people want a further conversation with you to talk this through to talk other other stuff through to find out more about the insights that you provide where's the best place for them to find you um well certainly take a look at insight diy um anybody can direct message me through linkedin and connect with me uh, and they can email me at steve at irg .co.uk awesome I've, I've really enjoyed this one because it's something that's close to my heart and i've grown up with for you know, 10 12 years of my life so uh, now i really appreciate you coming on final question for everybody that comes on is what's the best bit of business advice you've ever been given 
That's a really good question. I think it went back to when I was first thinking of setting up my own business in, in 2010. And I spoke to some other people who've been running businesses for a number of years. Um, and they all said the same thing. You have to get a really good team around you. You've got to get somebody who you've got to get a good accountant. You've got to get somebody who's really good with the numbers. You've got to get somebody who knows how to run business and just make sure that you've got that team, whether it's a, you know, graphic design or whatever the nature of your business is, get that team around you, look after them because that's the foundation for your, for your business as you grow. And it was probably the best advice I received because I searched out the right partners early on and that really put me in a, put me in a very good place. Yeah, very, very wise words. And for anybody who's thinking starting up by themselves, I'd echo that totally. Yeah. Experts are there for a reason. Um, and you don't become an expert overnight, do you? No, no, exactly. Exactly. So really appreciate your time, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. Look after yourself and we'll catch up soon. You're very welcome, Simon. And thank you for the opportunity to uh, to speak with you.